You're trying hard, but you know you don't really belong. You're trying hard, but you know you don't really belong. That happened to me uh, when I first arrived in Malaysia a long time ago now, back in 2005. Uh, I'd come to Smack for the first time, and I met a couple of church members. And in passing, as I got to know them, I just mentioned to them that I used to play a little bit of golf. Uh, and immediately, they very kindly invited me to go and play a round of golf with them here because they were very keen golf players. So without thinking about it, I gladly accepted. And that weekend, uh, we arrived at the course. It wasn't exactly what I expected. These kind friends had brought me to KLGCC just down the road. If you've been there, that's Kuala Lumpur Golf and Country Club. It is a PGA-level course. 18 holes with water hazards everywhere. There's more water than grass as far as I'm concerned. Now, I was used to little nine-hole pitch and putts back at home on the seafront in the UK. You know, the kind of thing that little five-year-olds or toddlers can have a go at? So in no time at all, as we started to play, I was shown to be by far the weakest link. I was constantly hitting my ball into the rough when I managed to actually hit it at all. I got for an entire box of 12, I think, throughout the whole game because half of them was going to the closest lake that it could possibly find. And then I found out, as a foreigner, that there are certain things that you can't even do on a Malaysian golf course that you can do on a course in the UK. It was a hot day. It was a Saturday in Malaysia. So halfway through the rather exhausting game, I looked for some shade and I leant against the closest tree, only to watch my golf buddies run toward me with horror in their eyes. Get away from the tree, Tim! And I did, only to find red ants crawling all over my back. We don't have red ants in the UK. It was a tough day. My golf buddies were so patient with me as I hit an average of 20 over par, but it was still really obvious I do not belong anywhere near Kuala Lumpur Golf and Country Club golf course. I couldn't play properly. I couldn't even rest properly. I just don't belong there. As we come to Luke 17 today, Jesus begins to teach his disciples about true faith, which shows we really belong. We really belong to him. We really belong to his kingdom that he has come to establish. Jesus is still here in Luke, heading slowly but surely towards Jerusalem. He is determined to fulfill his mission, ultimately in the cross, saving our world from the ravages of sin and death by bringing God's eternal kingdom in, giving sinners like us the hope of life with God again. And during this journey to the cross, he's been teaching his disciples what will it mean to live as subjects of his kingdom. Now, these verses... Now, these verses that we have here before us today in Luke 17, they do appear at first to be a series of unrelated teachings. Uh, They seem quite random, but Luke has put them together like this for a reason. As we dig just a little bit deeper, we see this thread running through. Uh, We see the word faith mentioned three times in verse 5, verse 6, and later in verse 19. See, Jesus helps us to see here, belonging to him and belonging to his kingdom means having faith. A faith 
that will shape the way that we relate to one another and will shape the way that we relate to God as our God. Let's start with that first one. True faith shapes how we treat one another. And the first point here is that we do not stumble others. Jesus begins in verse 1, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. If you were here last week, we saw the tragic tale of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was very poor, but faithful before God in this life. But the rich man, who was very wealthy, was faithless before God in this life. And we saw that story end with the rich man crying out to God, let Lazarus go to my father's house to warn my sons. We saw how serious it was to forsake God in sin, to rebel against him as our Lord in this life, enjoying the things of his creation, but without any right reference to him as the giver from whom we have received our every breath. We saw that 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 leads ultimately to judgment. It leads to an eternity of utter loss and despair. And so Jesus now warns his disciples here, yes, we do live in a world full of temptation to sin. We are surrounded by a culture that, that doesn't rightly love God and encourages us to do the same. Verse 1, temptations to sin are sure to come. But the gravest warning is reserved for those who bring temptation to sin to our very doorstep. See how verse 1 continues? But woe to the one through whom they come. Uh, the word for temptation to sin here is literally to stumble, a stumbling block something that causes you to trip up in life. And likewise, the word sin down in verse 3 is literally to stumble. Anyone who causes these little ones to sin, to stumble. Jesus says, actually, you're better off experiencing a very gruesome end in this life than intentionally tripping up a fellow brother or sister in Christ into sin. So verse 2, Jesus says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. You're not familiar with mills. The millstone in Jesus' day uh, was by far the largest stone found in the mill. It was huge, and it was incredibly heavy. It would, just for its sheer weight, pulverize the grain in order for uh, the miller to make bread. And Jesus says it, it would be better for us to have that huge stone weight put around our necks and then be thrown into the sea and drown than to stumble another believer into sin. There is nothing more serious than sin. The rich man, back in Luke 16, realized that in the end he would have given anything just to go and warn his own flesh and blood against it. So how seriously to deliberately encourage another in sinning against God. A true faith doesn't seek to stumble others into sin, but instead it radically builds others up. So we come to verse 3. Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Here is the first radical way Jesus says we are to act. We are to build each other up. We are to lovingly Rebuke. If your brother sins, rebuke him. That, that is a radical idea, isn't it? 
Because when I come across this and I teach this, people say in response to this charge, oh, no, 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 judge not, lest you be judged. You cannot point out another person's sin because by doing so, you're automatically passing judgment on them. And yet, friends, if we think about it, that doesn't really follow. Yes, it is possible to judge someone in a self-righteous way, to, to look down on them, to demean them for the very sins we are guilty of, and that is very wrong. We mustn't do that. But Jesus says, no, warning a brother or sister in rebuke whose sin against us is so evident that we can clearly point it out, to do that in love is an act of radical love because we care about them and we care about their eternal well-being and we know, we are warned that perpetual unrepentant sin is not a path to life with God and rest but instead a path to death away from him. Now, notice Jesus does say pay attention to yourselves as well. We do need to watch ourselves with this, our motivations, if we are, feel we need to rebuke another. We must never do it out of pride. We must never do it because we think we're somehow better than the one that we're rebuking, lashing out in self-righteous anger. But we are still called to lovingly and gently rebuke in love for the sake of the one who has sinned against us when it matters most. Jesus says that briefly, but he spends more time on this next one. The other radically loving behavior is our ability to radically forgive radically forgive. Verse 3, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the, in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's the real focus, the emphasis that Jesus has here in his concern that we don't stumble each other into sin, our willingness as his people to radically forgive those who wrong us and subsequently repent of their wrongs before us. And it's very extreme, isn't it? If within one day someone sins against you and repents seven times before you, you are to forgive them. Jesus is using this extreme example to drive the point home where forgiveness is warranted. We, as his disciples, are not to withhold it. Now, of course, tragically, there are situations where forgiveness is sought after, where even reconciliation is demanded, but the repentance is not genuine. And I know this verse has been used in the past, in some of the most serious cases by abusive spouses, who abuse again and again and again. They have little concern to actually turn from their sin to repent. And yet they still insist that their Christian spouse forgive them because of what Jesus says here. That's not what Jesus is saying here. No, Jesus says you are to forgive radically, yes, those who truly repent. He is using the extreme example of forgiving a repentant sinner seven times in the same day, yes, but this guy in Jesus' eyes is still repentant. His emphasis is on our willingness as his people to radically forgive. There's no limit to our forgiveness, but the repentance must be genuine for forgiveness to be granted. This verse must not be used as a cover-up for evil. But where someone is truly sorry for a way in which they have sinned against us, we are called to just forgive and to keep on forgiving. That means letting go 
of the offense. It means not bringing it back to mind, not allowing it to be a part of the relationship with that person anymore, not bringing it up in further arguments, forgiving for good. This is Jesus' chief concern, having said, don't stumble others into sin. Because when we intentionally withhold forgiveness, when we should grant it, well, we can very easily do that. We can stumble one another. I know in my own life, as I look back, how when I've been guilty of an unforgiving spirit, it has led to further disunity and lasting harm between me and a brother in Christ. I remember having a a big fight with a Christian friend back in the UK years ago. Uh, Eventually, just this time, he acknowledged that you know, he was the one in the wrong, and he came, and he apologized. He was genuinely sorry, and I refused to let it go. He had hurt me deeply, and I was really, really bitter about it. And in my lack of willingness to forgive, more and more bitterness consumed our relationship. We continued fighting over many, many things. We continued to fail to serve and love Christ in the way that we treated one another, I effectively stumbled my brother who I refused to forgive into further sin. Jesus says, when someone repents before you, forgive them. Don't stumble them by refusing to do so. And that is a hard word. This radical forgiveness our Lord expects from us who trust in him. The disciples know this because you see how they respond in verse 5. Hearing this, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Because that's what they think they need to do this hard thing, to radically forgive. We need a monumental faith to do this. And yet see how Jesus responds, verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Jesus tells them it is not a matter of how much faith you have. Gives us here that the mustard seed, the mustard seed, the grain of a mustard seed was tiny. If you put one in your hand, you'd hardly be able to see it. Jesus says to his disciples, if even you had faith as small as the grain of a mustard seed, well then you could make what seems impossible, possible. So he refers to this mulberry tree on the side of the road that's right before them. This is a tree they would have known as his disciples. It was famous for its incredibly deep and branching roots. It was very, very difficult to move. The strongest storms were beat against them and they would stay rock solid. But Jesus says, if you had the faith of a tiny mustard seed, then they could say to this otherwise immovable tree, get up, throw yourself into the sea, and it would do so. Now, of course, we know today, just as Jesus knew in his day, trees don't listen to our words, let alone follow them. A tree doesn't have the power to unroot itself and put itself anywhere. Jesus is not speaking literally here. He's using what we call hyperbole overly dramatic language to press home his point. He's saying to his disciples, you will be able to do what seems impossible. And right now, they think forgiving others in this radical way is impossible. You will be able to do what seems impossible, and it won't be a matter of the amount of faith that you have. 
the smallest amount of faith when it's possible. It's not about how much faith you have. What matters is do you have faith in the first place? Do you have faith? You see, these disciples are yet to know Jesus by faith the way we as God's people today do, this side of the cross. What they see before them is God's promised king. But Jesus is still on the road to Jerusalem. They are yet to witness Jesus as God's promised crucified king. But when they are called to put their faith in God's crucified king, who died in their place for their every sin, though they were not worthy like us, then they will know by faith the power to radically forgive. As they see something of the unfathomable forgiveness God has shown us, through his son and the cross. That is what makes the difference, Jesus says. It's not about how much faith you have, but knowing by faith that we ourselves have been forgiven an eternal debt. We ourselves have been forgiven our sin against God, otherwise leading us to judgment. Through nothing we ourselves have done, but entirely on the basis of what Christ has done by his blood. He laid down his life willingly as the one who did not deserve to die that we might be forgiven and escape the death we deserve for sin. It's in the cross that we find this radical power to forgive what our world out there would say is impossible. You may have heard of Corrie ten Boom. She was a Dutch watchmaker, and she helped many Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust during the Second World War. And at one point during the war, her own sister was captured, and subsequently she perished in one of the concentration camps. And many, many years later, she was at a meeting where she was confronted by one of the guards responsible for the camp where her sister had perished. Now, he had paid for his crimes, and in that process, he had become a Christian. And now he was before Corrie ten Boom, and he stretched out his hand and begged her for forgiveness for what he had done. And Corrie just froze. Seeing this guard brought back all those painful memories of what the war and men like him had cost her, her own sister. She didn't want to shake his hand. She just froze. But in that same moment, she prayed. She prayed, Lord, help me remember your love right now. And as she did that, she found the strength to take this man, her brother in Christ, by the hand, and to forgive him. But it was only her faith in the cross that made what would seem to many, and certainly our world, possible what would have been impossible, this act of forgiveness. Friends, how much more should we be quick to forgive one another of the often far smaller ways in which we are guilty of sinning against one another? in the light of the same cross by which Corrie and that man was saved.
As we do that, we do what seems impossible by faith. But as we do, there's another danger. Because if we do this well by faith and we start to uh, lose sight of ourselves before Christ, we can start to get pretty proud as well. We can start to think we're pretty great, that God must be pretty happy with me because I'm so quick to forgive my brothers or sisters who sin against me. And so Jesus now brings us onto the second mark of true faith. It shapes the way not only we relate to one another, but the way that we relate to and see ourselves before God. True faith shapes the way we relate to God. We will not ever be rightly proud before him. Come with me to verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Uh, Jesus gives us the example of a slave and his master. Uh, He's not commending the practice of slavery here, but he's using it as a common practice in his day to make his point. And we're given uh, this slave who comes in at the end of the day working in the fields And Jesus asks some rhetorical questions of the disciples. This first one in verse 7. Will the master say to him, come at once and recline at table? In other words, come in, my servant, and share in the family meal that I've prepared. And the disciples would have just instinctively said, no, of course not. He's the servant. Jesus follows. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Then there's one more round in verse 9. Jesus asks, does the master thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And again, the disciples, they know the answer. It's it's no. That the slave, the servant, is not thanked. He's not given some special reward for simply doing his duty. And so now Jesus drives the point home for his servants, his disciples. Verse 10. So you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, of course, the relationship that Jesus really has in mind here as he shares this story with them is it's not between a human slave and his master, but it's between us and our master, our Lord. And Jesus makes it clear here, whatever we might accomplish For our Lord in the service of his kingdom as his people, we will remain unworthy subjects of it. In other words, that there's nothing we can do that will mean God owes me one. God should pat me on the back and give me some preferential treatment because I'm doing so well and I'm so great. But I can tell when I start to think along these lines, particularly as a pastor, when I start to care a great deal about what you guys think of me and my ministry. So someone encourages me because they've actually been able to stay awake for the whole sermon. And I hear those words and I feel very, I feel proud about it. Nailed it. God's got to be so happy with what I did today. Good little preacher. Five minutes later, someone comes to me uh, talking about the same talk with a serious complaint. It really gets to me, and I sulk for hours. Melissa says, just go out and do something, Tim. You're in a terrible mood. When we behave this way, we show that our faith and our security is not rooted in Christ where it belongs. It's rooted in me and how I am doing my performance for him. 
And so when things go well, we become puffed up in pride, proud, arrogant. And when things don't go so well, we become bitter and discouraged. Jesus says, no, there there is no room for this kind of pride if our faith is in him and we are working it out rightly. No, we won't be proud. Rather, we will be full of thanksgiving and praise. True faith means giving God thanks and praise continually. See in verse 11, Jesus' closing words. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus is back on the road, and now he makes this really important transition from Galilee in the north, because he's heading to Jerusalem in the south, and he has to head through a part of Samaria that lies between. And so he enters one of the villages in Samaria where we're told ten lepers, they make their way toward him, but they don't get too close because they can't. They are lepers. They have leprosy. They are unclean, and they are not allowed to approach anyone too closely. They are desperate in their disease, and they cry out to Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They recognize Jesus has authority, and they hope in his authority to restore them. So what does Jesus do, verse 14? When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests, and as they went, they were cleansed. Jesus says, you go, you go and do the customary ritual cleansing, but they don't even get that far. On their way to the priest, all ten lepers are physically restored. They are cured. They are healed. But then see what we're told in verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Out of all ten... Of these guys, having been healed by Jesus from a painful, incurable, socially debilitating disease, having basically been given their lives back, only one of them thinks to thank God. And so turns back and falls before Jesus as God in thanks and praise. And we're told out of all ten, this one was a Samaritan. See, Jesus makes the observation of verse 17. Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? It's incredible that only one of the ten returned to show proper thanks to God. Only one thanks Jesus for basically receiving his life back. But not only that, the one who does is a foreigner. He's a Samaritan. He's considered a religious outcast by the Jews well outside God's kingdom, God's purposes. The Samaritans, they were the descendants of God's people from long before, but they had intermingled with other nations. And so they were despised by their Jewish cousins. Here we have a Samaritan leper, a social outcast, a religious outcast, someone who was considered by the disciples to be as far from God as anyone could be. And yet he alone is truly healed by Jesus in every way that matters. Verse 19, and Jesus said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. 
But actually what Jesus literally says there is, your faith has saved you. That's the word. Your faith has saved you. All ten lepers may have been physically restored. Yes, they would know physical restoration in this life. But only this one who thanked Jesus, despite being a complete outcast in every way, has the promise of life with God both now and for eternity. He is saved for the kingdom. He alone expressed true faith. He recognized how hopeless his situation was, and he humbly gave thanks because Jesus was the one who lifted him out of it. And this, guy is a mirror for us if we are God's people. We who were once far off in our sin. We who all have been guilty of spurning God who gave us life and so committing the greatest crime of living in his world as members of his creation but without any right reference to him as king. The one who made us for his glory but we've all, I know I have, exchanged a right love for God for a love for myself and other things. And so I live as I see fit. Nothing I could do to change my heart turned away from God. Much like this Samaritan leper, hopeless, we were in the grip of the worst disease of sin, leading to judgment. And yet God is the one who acted in his great love. God is the one who gave his son and then gave us eyes to see by faith that we might trust on him who died to set us free so that we who were as far off as we could be might be brought close again back into the blessing of life, of rest, what God made us for. So like the healed Samaritan here, what is the only appropriate response now and always if our faith is in Christ and we have been redeemed by his blood? It is to give thanks. It's just to be thankful and to serve him in thanks and praise. I wonder if you've heard of Stephen Bradbury. This is Stephen Bradbury coming up. He's an Australian speed skater. And he went down in the history books for winning the first ever Olympic gold for his nation, Australia, in 2002 for the 1,000-meter ice skating sprint. And the reason this win made him so famous is because he didn't deserve it at all. You see, Australia, they aren't actually really known for their champion ice skaters. Sorry to the Australians who are here. Bradbury, this is what happened. Bradbury got through the quarterfinal only because the skater who beat him ended up being disqualified. Then in the semifinal, he would have come last, but his faster opponents all managed to topple over each other on the last leg. (laughs) And then in the final, as we see here, this is the pitch coming up for the final, (laughs) the same thing happened again. Bradbury was over 50 meters behind in fourth place, and all the other skaters crashed on the last leg. And he, unbelievably, just sailed through to victory. So can you imagine what it was like when he was on the podium, receiving his Olympic gold medal? He wasn't waving his hand saying, look at me, aren't I amazing? He was humble, quite bewildered, and just thankful. Embarrassed, really. <laughs> I got a gold medal. Yeah, of course he had worked hard. He was an athlete. He had trained hard. But he'd still been given this incredible award he didn't deserve. First in the 
Olympic Games. Friends, we are very much like Stephen Bradbury. We have been awarded what we could never, ever hope to deserve. We were facing death for our sins. And instead, we have received the award of eternal life in God's kingdom, in the blessing of God's good presence that we were made to know and enjoy and find our rest in. And how has that been made possible? Only by faith, by depending on what Christ has done. We have the greatest master who laid down his life so that we might know life abundantly with him. And so we will be forever in his debt as we serve Christ as Lord today as his people with all that we are with the gifts that he has given to each one of us to love and honor him and to love and serve one another we do that with thankfulness and pride because Christ gave his all that we the lost might be redeemed friends today we've seen what true faith looks like if our faith is rooted in Christ then it will shape the way we treat each other We will be careful not to stumble one another into sin, but we will be willing to forgive as we have been forgiven. It will shape the way that we relate to and see ourselves before God. We won't be puffed up in pride before him, but full of thanksgiving and praise continually because we know God first loved us and gave us that imperishable life with him we could never hope to deserve. Do we have this kind of faith? Or are these marks really missing from our lives? Like me struggling at the golf course at KLGCC, we know actually we don't really belong. Our faith is not rooted in Christ. These marks are missing. If that is true for you, God invites you today. Turn from your sin that keeps you from life with him and trust in his son by faith. The one who alone has died to set you free, recognize there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. We've all fallen short in our stubbornness, in our pride, in our sin. And our only hope is to rely on the rescue Christ has won for us by faith. And if we do that, then we will know God's power to forgive as we have been forgiven. We will continually remember we are unworthy servants who have no reason to boast, but every reason to be thankful to God with all that we are. We will have this desire to forgive. We will have this desire to serve made possible by God himself as he strengthens us by his spirit through faith in his son. Won't you put your trust in Christ? And if you have, well, then we will persevere in these things, loving God as we should. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. Let's stand and we're going to sing by faith.